0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Jason Pfeiffer. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, host of the podcasts Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers, and author of the new book, Build for Tomorrow. In this conversation, we talk about his new book. And his new book is not a business book. It's actually a book about everything we grapple with, because in order to survive in times of change, we must first create change within ourselves. And we break that down. We talk about how to be resilient and resourceful, inflexible and in your thinking, and how to thrive by harnessing the power of change. And to do that, we have to break down the different stages of change So we talk about when change starts to happen and we panic, and then we talk about how to adapt with that change and move through those four phases. I've just named two of them, panic and adapt. And we've all recently gone through very dramatic waves of change, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so if you feel like you've been riding a wave of change for a while, this book and this conversation is perfect for you. So I'm just going to get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Jason Pfeiffer. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'm excited to talk about your brand new book. But before we get into that, obviously, you are the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur. I'm curious, what's the connection between entrepreneurialism and your book, Build for Tomorrow, subtitle, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career. What's the Venn diagram in your head about the book and entrepreneurism?
1: So the book really came out of a question that people kept asking me, and that was, what are the qualities of successful entrepreneurs? What is the thing that drives people to success if there's a pattern? And at first, I'll be honest, I didn't have an answer to that. I I was actually kind of weirded out that people kept asking me the question because when I became editor-in-chief, which was in 2016, I would go on podcasts, I would go to events, and that was just a question that kept coming up. And I started to think, what is the explanation for this question? And I realized that if you listen to the questions that people ask you, you will really be hearing what people think your value is to them. Like that's what they're telling you what they think your value is to them. And the reason they were asking me that question, I realized, was because they see me as a pattern matcher. I'm the guy who has access to lots of people, and therefore, I should be able to see the patterns across those people. That's my value. So if I can understand that value, and I can have an answer to it, then I increase my value. And so I thought, well, what is the answer to this question? What is the thing that drives success? I spent years talking about it, thinking about it, interviewing people about it, and The commonality that I found is that the most successful people that I meet are the most adaptable. And I wanted to understand what it is that they were doing. It doesn't seem to be something people are born with. It seems to be a skill that people can learn. And the pandemic really became the moment in which I felt that was most studyable because the pandemic was when everybody went through the same change at the same time and then radically diverged in how they acted. And I saw some people reinvent their careers and their businesses. And I saw other people try to cling desperately to the past. And out of that came the book. It was really an effort to understand what it is that adaptable people do so that they can find new opportunity in moments of great change, which is a thing that we all face, but not all of us are very good at.
0: So I like that you said, one, we all face change. And two, We don't all have the skill or we don't have it honed to the same level. It's kind of like how, you know, in junior high and high school, my wife and I have always said, you know, they really should be teaching more of this like life skills stuff there. Right. And I would think that adaptability and, you know, resilience and being able to move through the process of change would find itself at home in that kind of skill set. In a younger generation as they're honestly really needing it. I mean, it's a skill set that really should be taught at that young level, right?
1: I agree with that. It's a hard skill set to teach though, of course, because part of this is an intellectual exercise. I can tell you things to do and we can talk about that, but intellectual exercises will only get you so far, of course. There's only so much you can tell someone without them having to really experience it in order for it to sink in. And then also, let's not forget that We learn how to do this kind of stuff, not just through exercises or lessons, but also by absorbing what the people around us do. And because so many people are very bad at this, I would imagine a lot of people just grow up in families where parents are very resistant to change, where their friends are resistant to change, where their communities, where their networks are really dug in and they therefore are absorbing those lessons and habits. And I agree with you that it would be excellent for us to start to introduce these concepts at an earlier age. But this is also, we have to recognize a journey that every individual person is going to have to go on. And they are going to have to Enter an ever changing world with whatever tools and perspectives they have available. And then they're going to have to test that against the real world and then hopefully start to evolve as they learn more.
0: Now you mentioned the pandemic in terms of it being like a, an accelerator moment or a moment that's, you know, under the microscope when everybody has to change. Let's, you know, let's mass scale learn from each other on that level. But. Was that the moment that kind of changed your mind or your thinking or brought about this mindset on change? Or how did you enter into the pandemic? What was your status of mindset on change before, you know, pre-pandemic, in other words?
1: Oh, before the pandemic, I had already concluded that it was the most important skill for success. But what I hadn't figured out was how people were really thinking through it, what they were doing, and then how to package that and communicate it to others. That I hadn't figured out yet. I mean, I remember going back to the keynotes that I was doing before the pandemic where I would do these talks about change, but I I think back on them now and I think, you know, they were really cheerleader-y, but they weren't that instructive because I hadn't gotten to that point yet of really understanding what it was that people were doing. Look, I'll give you just one little example. The last thing that I did socially before the pandemic disrupted everything was I went out to a friend's birthday dinner. It was actually, was Nicole Lappin, who I co-host a podcast with called Help Wanted. And Nicole had a birthday dinner with 12 friends at a restaurant or something. And I was seated next to this woman named Megan Asha, who runs a company called Founder Maid. They host trade shows for the CPG industry. And I was saying to Megan, boy, it looks like events are gonna be shutting down. How are you thinking about this? And she said, you know, I am actually weirdly excited about it. And the reason for that is because we have all of these ideas for new lines of revenue and new opportunities for FounderMade. And we've never really been able to explore them because all of our resources are always being put towards getting the next trade show up. And so now we're going to be forced to stop that and we're going to be able to explore some of these other ideas. That left a really large impression on me. That was somebody who was using the fear of the unknown to say, well, we got to figure something new out. There have to be other options available for us, which is the opposite of what I think most people's reaction is, which is to say, how can I cling most tightly to the thing that I'm already doing? How can I preserve the familiar in some way? And as the pandemic then rolled on, I got to see that there were lots of people who thought like Megan. But a lot more people who did not, and that is what made me really want to figure this out,
0: man, to somebody that has that kind of forethought or even just that they were entertaining that creativity in terms of those different revenue streams and options and opportunities, so that when change, which is inevitable, comes along, they looked at it as an opportunity instead of something to you know run and hide from or hunker down and you know circle the wagons, in other words, and yeah. That's really cool. I have to admire that. But most people, they find themselves in that fearful mode. So how do we start to move, you know, if if change is inevitable, which it is, and we constantly find ourselves butting up against change, how do we start to get our mind to become more flexible and adaptable and and resilient when it comes to change?
1: So it starts by having a good perception of yourself. Because Before you can navigate the new change in front of you, you better understand what it is that you're carrying into that change. We we make a mistake, all of us, far too often, and that is that we identify too closely with the output of our work or the roles that we occupy, so that if someone comes up to you at a party and says, what do you do, your answer is almost certainly going to be one of those two things. It's either the output of your work, the thing that you produce, or it's going to be the role you occupy somewhere. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with identifying with those things. But the problem is that those things are so easily changeable. So if that is how you anchor your identity, your sense of understanding of yourself, well, then as soon as those things change, and I phrase that that way because they will, as soon as those things change, you don't just have a change to your work. You have a change to your identity. That feels really scary. Why? Because we experience change as loss. It's how we think of it we experience change as loss. So decades of psychological research will show you that we all have loss aversion theory, which is to say that we're more focused on protecting against loss than we are in pursuing gain. So when something changes, we start to think, what is it that I am losing? What thing am I comfortable with and familiar with that is no longer going to be here with me? And when that's your whole identity, that is terrifying. So one of the first things that we need to do is we need to define ourselves in a way in which we are not anchored to something that is easily changed. It's what I like to call the thing that does not change in times of change. And I would suggest you do, and I have a whole exercise, not to hawk the book, but like I have a whole exercise on how to do this in the book, Build for Tomorrow. But what I found, it was incredibly valuable for me and what I would suggest for everyone else, push yourself to come up with a single sentence that describes you and what you do in a way in which every word is not anchored to something that is easily changeable. So what does that sound like? Well, for me, it is not, I am a magazine editor. It is not, I write books. It is not, I host podcasts. It is seven words. I tell stories in my own voice. And why is that important? I tell stories. Well, think about the word stories. Stories isn't magazines. It's not newspapers. It's not podcasts. It's not whatever. This is my phone. I'm holding for people who aren't watching uh, or just listening. I'm holding my phone up right now. And the reason I'm doing that is because my boss at Entrepreneur, I don't own Entrepreneur. It's not my company. I'm just the editor-in-chief. My boss at Entrepreneur has my phone number. He can call this phone that I'm holding right now at any time and he can fire me. He can do it right now as I'm holding the phone. It'd be super weird. And... If he does that, and my identity is, I'm a magazine editor, well, then I am one phone call away from losing my identity. And that is a terrible place to be. But if I tell stories, no phone call takes that away from me. And then in my own voice, in my own voice is the way in which I'm setting the terms for how I want to operate at this phase in my career. I'm not interested in telling other people's stories in other people's voices. I'm telling stories in my voice the more that you can come up with that. And and look, I've run that exercise with so many people as I go and I speak to executive teams and I hear the most amazing things. I hear people say, you know, I help organizations solve complex problems. I help people achieve their greatness. I am a builder of things. You get down to that granular level to the thing that's inside of your core that drove you to develop skills that enable you to do the tasks. Well, now what you're really doing is you're unlocking... All this other potential, because when change comes to the thing that you're already doing, you don't feel anchored to it. You have transferable value. If all magazines disappeared today, I can still tell stories. I know what I'm carrying forward into that changing world. And therefore I can start to recognize new identities. The CEO of Foodsters, which is a baking, they they make baking mixes and sweet baked goods. He told me our mission is to bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. I love that. Bring joy to people. There's never going to be an absence of need for joy. So bring joy to people. And then with upgraded sweet baked goods, great. There's a million ways to do that. If people hate baking mixes, you can do it in some other way. The more you liberate yourself from a narrow understanding of yourself, the more you are able to move more confidently into anything that's changing.
0: That's a great perspective. I, I think this is one of the things that, you know, as we've talked over the course of the past 10 years on this show, we've had a lot of shift in terms of and it was happening before that but you know the days of working for one company and working there for your entire life and they give you the gold watch and you know the the bank account you know all that and you retire and all that like those days are gone we have portfolio careers at this point and this is key as to how to make that work
1: yes it is i wouldn't even want to be in one place i mean i guess i've come up in that environment now where I see people move and grow. But I've also, frankly, just experienced it myself in reinventing myself so many times. I started as a community newspaper reporter, making $20,000 a year at a tiny place called the Gardner News. And then I became a magazine editor, and then I kind of kept pushing myself into doing all these different things. And you know, something that really helped me along the way was what I came to call Work Your Next Job. And Work Your Next Job means this. In front of you who is listening to this right now, in front of you, in front of me, in front of all of us, there are two sets of opportunities. You can call them opportunity set A and opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's asked of you. So if you got a boss and that boss has expectations and you're evaluated on how well you meet those expectations, then you have to do a good job with those things. That's opportunity set A. Opportunity set B is everything that's available to you that nobody's asking you to do. And that could be at work where you could join a new team or take on some new responsibilities, or it could be something outside of work where you listen to podcasts and you like podcasts, so you decide to start one of your own. Nobody is asking you to do most things. But I am here to tell you that opportunity set B, doing the things that are available to you that nobody's asking you to do, those are more important, infinitely more important. Not to say opportunity set A is unimportant, you have to do good work or you'll get fired and you don't have an income, but... Opportunity set B is where growth happens. If all you ever do is focus on the thing that you're already doing, you'll only be qualified to do the thing you're already doing. And therefore, there's no growth that happens there. But when you're doing opportunity set B, you start to open doors into the future. I mean, the things that I do today are the result of me taking risks many years ago and not knowing how they would pay off. The reason that I can have this conversation with you right now using this kind of voice that I've come up with for talking on microphones and being able to maintain eye contact with this camera that we have here is because years and years ago, when I was at a different magazine called Fast Company, and they started a video department, I, a print magazine editor, volunteered to be an on-air host. And they stuck me in front of a camera and I didn't really know what I was doing. And nobody had asked me to do this, but I just figured it was a good skill to learn. And I didn't know why it would be a good skill to learn. Was was, was I going to get a TV show? No, nobody ever gave me a TV show. But years and years later... When I was talking with the president and CEO of Entrepreneur Media about being the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, one of the things that they really liked about me was that I was able to go out and represent the brand really well. You could stick me on TV. You could stick me on a stage. I'm comfortable doing it. The reason I'm comfortable doing it is because of all this other stuff that I did before that I didn't know how it would pay off because I just followed opportunity set B. That's how this works. It's a weird zigzag payoff, but you have to be able to give yourself the resources and the tools to make the zigs and the zags. So when you work your next job starting right now, you prepare yourself for unknowns in the future.
0: I love the way that you frame that up because I really appreciate this thought that Even if somebody listening in is stuck, air quotes, stuck in a position where they feel like nothing I'm doing right now applies to the position or positions in my portfolio that I can see myself doing that I want to do working those jobs now by doing those things, you're not wasting the experience and the opportunity to not just experience, but build that muscle. It's almost like doing pushups against the wall of a cubicle, like you're in prison, right? It, metaphorically. <laughs> and that's a weird way to put that, but that's kind of my mental picture that helps me with that because I've personally spent a lot of time in cubicles and spent some of it very wisely and some of it very poorly. And if I had had adapted This idea of working my next job, I would have done so much more of those things that weren't asked of me in those moments, and it would have helped.
1: In a way, what you're getting at is, are you pushing yourself to go beyond the confines that you've been put in? (laughs) So the image of a cubicle always reminds me of is confines. And there are these two questions that I had come to ask myself whenever I was taking or thinking about leaving a job. And those two questions are, what do I need to learn and have I learned it? If the answer is that I have learned it, then I'm out. I have never in my, and this is not career advice. You shouldn't necessarily do this. It just happened to work for me. But I have never in my career, and I've worked at a lot of different places and have by some measures succeeded, uh, that I have never once gotten a job offer somewhere else and then came back to try to negotiate staying. I've never done it, not once. I've never had that conversation. I decided it was time to go. I found where to go. I left. And the reason for that was because, I mean, like, you know, I when I was at Fast Company and it was time to go somewhere else, what the hell else am I going to learn at Fast Company? At that point, I felt like I had learned what I had come to learn and it was time to go somewhere else and learn. And when you just have that programmed into your head, that there are things to learn and that you also have to be alert to when you have learned them, there's just, there's no way to just sit still. There's no way to show up in that cubicle and just keep doing the thing that you're already doing because it will start to drive you crazy because you will feel trapped because you will start to think about all the things that you are not qualified to do because today you are not being proactive to qualify yourself for them. And the more that I thought about that and obsessed over that, the more I just felt I had to keep moving.
0: Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search. The other thing that I think is unique about this and is refreshing is I remember you were talking earlier about identifying the parts of our work that will change and the parts that don't and how you're a storyteller. And so if you're not defining yourself by your actions in that position that you feel, again, air quotes stuck in. Then you can't be identified. If you don't allow yourself to be identified by those actions, that position, that role – in other words, you have your why, your real why, not just your why of why you're there, but your real why, like you said about being a person who tells stories in their own voice – then you can do a lot of resilient work towards that, what do I need to learn in this position – and put up again. I say put up with. Well, sometimes that's what has to happen. We have to have thick skin and get through stuff. But it also provides the exit out.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I've I've talked to so many people who have figured that out for themselves. I'll tell you a really quick one, which was uh, Stacy London, who's become a friend. She is known by most as the co-host of this television show for ten seasons or something called What Not to Wear, and she was a magazine fashion editor who got this job on What Not to Wear, which for those who don't know, is a kind of reality makeover show where you, she and a co-host would find some schlubby person and then they would get them a new clothing and get them a haircut and some makeup and everyone cries at the end. And so the interesting thing about Stacey was is she, by starting in magazines and then having that very successful television show and then going on to do a bunch of other television, really shaped her identity as a fashion expert and as a TV personality. And that worked very well for her until she reached about 50. And then TV networks stopped wanting to put her on television. And that wasn't just a blow to her ego, it was a blow to her identity because she was a TV personality who now wasn't on TV. And meanwhile, she had become a beta tester for this company called State of Menopause that makes products that help women with menopausal symptoms. And the parent company reached out to Stacy and said, hey, you've been very enthusiastic as a beta tester. We're actually looking to offload this company. Would you want to buy it and run it? And she said, no, because I'm a TV personality and that's not what I do. I don't buy companies and run them. But then she had to step back and think about it. And she realized, she, she asked herself, what is my kernel of truth? And her kernel of truth, she realized, is that what she really does is not help people with style and not be on TV, but really help people with their self-esteem and self-identity and sense of self that's what she had done. And she had just done that on television. But that doesn't mean that television is the only way in which she can do that. In fact, what better way to help people with their sense of self and self-esteem than by buying this company and helping people gain access to this product that helps people with their sense of self and self-esteem. And so that's what she did. And now she owns and runs State of Menopause. And that kind of transformation, I see as a real unlock, where Stacy realized that her value, was so much greater than she had given herself credit for. And as a result, she was able to see new opportunities that she had discarded just moments before.
0: We've talked a lot about people being adaptable and and examples of that. I know that in the book you talk about we experience change in four phases. I'd love to do an overview of what each of these four phases are so people kind of have a, a macro level context here for this.
1: Sure, yeah. So the four phases are this. Panic, adaptation, new normal, wouldn't go back. So panic, very familiar. We don't know what's going on. We feel totally disoriented. We're experiencing that change equals loss adaptation, we start to build, we start to look at what new things are available to us, how we can start to reconstruct something. Then new normal, where we have some new level of familiarity, of comfort, and then wouldn't go back, which is that moment where we say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And what I have found is that everybody goes through these four phases. Everybody. The only difference... Is that some people move through them very efficiently and some people do not.
0: So I imagine that as you were looking at the landscape of the pandemic and everybody doing their different, you know, versions of change, everybody found themselves, well, no, that's not true. I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase that because that's lumping a lot of people in and saying everybody panicked. No, I don't think everybody panicked. I think a lot of people, like you said, Immediately thought, well, we've got these other revenue streams we'd like to try. So not everybody panics is probably. No, no, no,
1: but I would argue that that was panic. So like that was constructive use of panic. When I tell that story about Megan Asha sitting at dinner, Megan had a good story to tell me, but she was not not panicking. I mean, she would probably be the first to admit that. I, I mean, the very lifeblood of her business was now in jeopardy. If you don't panic over that, then you don't have a pulse. But The thing was that she had trained herself to use that panic to seek new solutions, whereas other people use that panic to try to cling to what came before. And that, I think, is the distinction that's really important. Megan was able to start because Megan didn't have a plan. She had a plan for a plan, right? She just had a thesis. And so it wasn't really until she was able to start rallying her team around new ideas and start to experiment and start to figure out what else works for this company, that I would say that she really started to reach the stage of adaptation. Before, she's panicking. She's trying to do something. Look, why do people feel like panicking? It's often because they don't feel a sense of autonomy. This is really interesting psychological research. It's been around for decades. It's called self-determination theory. Self-determination theory states that people need three things in order to be happy. Number one, Autonomy, a sense of control. Number two, connectedness, connection to people around them. Three, competency. They need to feel like they're good at something. And if you don't have those things, you don't feel happy. And when change comes, one of the very first things that you feel like you lose is a sense of autonomy. You don't feel that you're in control of the situation, and that can lead to panic. But What Megan did, which I think is incredibly important, is that Megan used that panic to gain a sense of autonomy because she gave herself something to think about and do. doesn't mean that she had amazing ideas at the start. doesn't mean that she had any idea how they were going to work out. She was panicking, but she was looking for something to control. And that impulse to find something to control, I think is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And it's in contrast to a lot of people who I think sit Back and say, well, there's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. And that's panic that doesn't drive you anywhere.
0: Is there a line between the first two phases between panic and adaptation where you use the panic productively, in other words, to thrust yourself into the second phase? It almost feels like it's the stages of grief. They're messy. You don't just progress stage to stage to stage. You sometimes experience multiple stages all at once.
1: That's exactly right. That, that's really the idea here. It's, this is not a clean linear process. I think that you can go back and forth between them. There's no one hard line, but I think that it is a valuable thing to step back and be able to say, am I just panicking here or am I doing something about it? Am I in a place where I'm adapting? Am I in a place where I feel like I have some control over the situation again? Am I in some place where Actually, the thing that happened, even though I wasn't looking for it and maybe it was hard getting there, is actually bringing me a lot of joy or is maybe even better than the thing I had before. These are helpful ways to check in with yourself and to just see where you are in this process because we can't sit still and we can't spend too much energy debating whether or not something should happen when it's already happened. We have to move We have to do something with this experience. And it's helpful to know where you are in it.
0: Obviously, adaptation takes a lot of different forms, but ultimately it's deciding, like in this instance, that there were possible other, you know, that was a story that was told. But the fact that they already had that story to tell means they had thought about, you know, rainy day scenarios, even though that wasn't the lifeblood of their company, they had options to start thinking about, And would you suggest that maybe since change is always inevitable, we should always be kind of thinking in that adaptation mode for when the inevitable panic may come?
1: Yeah, without question, because whatever we have that we're working on right now and whatever works right now is not guaranteed to work in the future. Harvard Business Review ran this piece years ago that I love that asks this question. The headline was something like, why do big companies stop innovating? And The answer, I think, speaks to a problem at large companies, but also speaks to individuals too. The answer is that at the very beginning, a company starts with an innovation and that distinguishes it in the marketplace. It brings something new into the world. It solves problems in a way that somebody else hadn't. And the company is able to grow as a result. But over time, more and more and more, and eventually all resources are shifted away from innovation and towards efficiency. It's just about making something smarter or rather faster and cheaper and better. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with efficiency. We like efficiency. But the problem is that if everything, top to bottom, if all of your incentives, if all of your people, if all of your energy is focused on doing the same thing faster, better, and cheaper, well, then you are going to leave yourself wide open to massive disruption. Because as it turns out, the greatest changes aren't going to come in linear form you think about Kodak, a classic example. Like The problem with Kodak was that they thought that their competition was other camera filmmakers. And so the way to compete against them was to make camera film that was better, faster, and cheaper. And that only works for so long until something else comes along and disrupts you. And you know what? The argument that I've heard that I think is very smart about Kodak, which came from this guy named Hamza Mudassir, who's a disruption expert at Cambridge, was that it wasn't even the digital camera that killed Kodak. That's what we always say is that the digital camera killed Kodak. Could be true, but here's an interesting theory. The interesting theory is that it's not the digital camera that killed Kodak. It was Facebook that killed Kodak. Why? Because the early digital cameras sucked. They did. They sucked. You know, if you're old enough to remember them and I am, they weren't very good. They were bulky. The resolution was terrible. What were you supposed to do with these digital photos? They were these giant files and your computer could barely hold them and it was impossible to send them to anybody. What were you supposed to do with these things? And then Facebook came along and Facebook gave people the first real use case for the digital photos. Now you are able to easily share them, to store and organize them. Suddenly digital photos had a purpose and that that was the thing that then drove people to value the digital camera, which then moved them away from the camera film. If you are only focused on doing things better, faster, and cheaper, or if you're just an individual and you're only focused on just doing a better job at the thing that you are already doing, you are leaving yourself open to massive disruption, which will come. And if you are not Thinking about it, and you're not pushing yourself to learn and to grow and to consider what else it is that you can do and be good at, well, then you are going to leave yourself totally flat-footed when that change comes.
0: My hometown is actually Rochester, New York, where Kodak is headquartered. And it's a bit sad to go visit because you see, like I've actually almost thought about Funny enough, taking a digital photo of like my phone is down on the ground of an empty parking lot with like stuff growing out of it. And then the, the building's kind of deteriorated in the background. And anyway, yeah, the timeline there is actually pretty interesting because I know that they weren't innovating. They weren't adapting as quickly as they should have when the camera was coming into play and, you know, all of that was happening. But then the nail in the coffin is really Facebook and social sharing for sure. At that point, it was kind of too late.
1: And so, you know, we can bring it back to the idea of your mission statement and the thing about you that does not change in times of change, because what if Kodak as an organization had gone through that process? And what if they didn't answer, we are a camera film business, because that is something that is subject to change. But rather, what if they said, we are in the memory business? Our role in people's lives is to capture memories. Well, if you define yourself that way, because there's never going to not be a need for memory, well, then what can you do? Well, you can start to think of other ways to engage with that. You can start to see nascent social media companies like Friendster and MySpace who were pretty interesting, but not getting it quite right. And maybe you could say, you know, we're a large company. We got a lot of resources. Maybe we should invest some energy in this and figuring this out because this is all about memory. This is all about people capturing and sharing their lives, which is literally the business that we've been in for decades. So why don't we get involved there? But they didn't. They sat around and instead, a dropout from Harvard figured it out instead. And I think that was because ultimately, that company was defining itself too narrowly.
0: Obviously, their new normal wasn't great, but that's the next phase, third phase. And that's a phrase, new normal, that a lot of people have just heard over and over again, especially because of pandemic. But how do you describe that new normal? phase? I know you mentioned it earlier.
1: I mean, to me, the new normal is really about familiarity. It is after you have adapted, you find something that's going to work, and you're going to want to do that over and over again. And you're going to start to regain that sense of solid footing that you had before. Think about getting laid off from a job, and then you're freaked out. You feel like you're free falling. Eventually, you get a new job, you show up at that new job, you got to learn a lot, but at some point it becomes familiar, becomes comfortable again. That's your new normal. And the new normal is a, is a line that people use all the time in, in reference to the pandemic and it's become a cliche, but uh, the reason I use it there is because it's not the goal. To me, new normal isn't the goal. You don't want just the new normal. The new normal actually is where you shouldn't stay because all that means is that you're going to set yourself up for being blind to another disruption, which is why I really like to continue to push for the wouldn't go back, which is where we really start to get to this place where we proved to ourselves that there was some better way to do the thing that we were doing, or there was some other option that we had never even considered. And oh my God, has it changed everything. And you will find that over and over again, reaching that doesn't mean that you won't get disrupted. Being that wouldn't go back doesn't mean that you're not going to have to start back at panic at some point. But it's a nice way to think about what the real goal should be. Which is not to just get good enough, not to just kind of like run in from the cold, but rather to try to figure out what it is that you can do to truly, truly reinvent.
0: For people to drive that home, that wouldn't go back moment, what's maybe an example either from your personal life or from the book that you think really exemplifies, okay, we're not going back. We wouldn't go back. Then in other words, change was a good thing here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you a story that just kind of just springs to mind that I really love, which is a woman whose name is Lena. She runs a wig store in Baltimore called Lena's Wigs. And it was a storefront. People walk in off the street, shop for wigs. Lena had an assistant who she had hired to greet people. And then pandemic arrives, are lockdowns, people can't go walking into stores anymore. And Lena's trying to figure out how to survive. And the only thing that she can think of is not some revolutionary idea. It's actually an idea she was well aware of, but had never thought was good for her business. And that was appointment only, move to appointment only. And the reason, of course, is, seems obvious why that would be a bad idea for her business. Why would you add friction to your consumer? Why would you make it harder for somebody to come in and shop with you? But she has no choice. And so she does it. And what she discovers to her great amazement is two things. Number one, customers are happier. Number two, sales and profits rise. Why? Well, because here's why. As Lena discovered, you know who doesn't buy wigs? The answer is people who walk in off the street. They don't buy wigs. They browse wigs. They don't buy wigs. You know who does buy wigs? People who are shopping generally for very personal reasons, religious or health. They are more than happy to make an appointment and have a private experience without a bunch of randos who walked in off the street. So here, because Lena thought there was only one way to run her business, she was paying somebody, paying an employee, to greet the people who were coming in off the street and not buying her product at the expense of the people who actually were. And it wasn't until she was forced to make this change and she saw what happened that she realized that there was another way to run her business. And then she leaned very heavily into it. Then she started to really invest in her digital presence, which she had never done before. She figured out how to do virtual fittings. And now she tells me she's making a lot more money with a lot less work and she's serving more people as a result. That's a wouldn't go back moment. And Lena did not want to find that, right? She didn't want to have her business disrupted. She thought it was running really well, but because she was forced to, she discovered a better way. And then once she saw that, that there was a better way, she leaned more into it and she really found that wouldn't go back moment for her.
0: Man, that's inspiring. I I love that, that you sometimes, you know, it's hidden right in plain sight and you don't know it, that you're being forced to confront this, you know, option or whatever it is that's in front of you. And if you eliminate those options or you change the way that you're thinking about it, I'd be curious to see what her, uh, true set is. In other words, like you're talking about being a storyteller and everything, like what right. hers is in that regard. But it's like, yeah, it, it kind of made sense to me is like, yeah, you're, you're spending all this time. It's kind of the 80, 20 rule too. It's like, oh, well, if let's flip that, you know, the 20% that are going to spend 80% of it, I'm not then wasting time on the walk-ins, in other words, and paying someone to greet them and so on. So, uh It takes those kinds of pausing and adapting, and I would say even having panic about it moments, to get to that wouldn't go back again. I'd love to shoot people over to where they can find out more about the book and dive deeper. We've barely scratched the surface of what's in the yeah. book, but- Again, it's called "Build for Tomorrow: An Action Plan for Embracing Change, Adapting Fast, and Future Proofing Your Career." And I think we've given pretty good examples of all of those things. But uh, where can people find it and connect with you?
1: The book you can find anywhere you find books. Again, "Build for Tomorrow." It's audiobook. I read it myself, ebook, or hardcover. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, whatever. Please go check it out. I'd love for you to. And then earlier, I had mentioned that I have a podcast. So if you're listening to this, you are a podcast listener. Anyway, I have a show called Help Wanted with Nicole Lappin, who's a best-selling finance expert. And what we do is exactly that. We take listener questions on careers and work, and we often bring them onto the show and talk them through it directly. And uh, sometimes Nicole and I will debate a subject ourselves. And you know, our goal is to just be incredible incredibly useful for people and help people build a career company they love.
0: That's awesome. I can't wait to tune in myself and listen in more on that. So I'll link up to the book in the show notes as well as your podcast. And hopefully more people will go check that out because it sounds like an awesome concept. Jason, great talking with you. Thank you so much for being here. And I I can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Oh, hey, well, thanks a lot. It was such a great conversation. I appreciate you having me.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Jason Pfeiffer. I really liked walking through the different phases of change that we all go through. It's kind of like the stages of grief. And by being more aware of that, being more aware of where we are in the process and who we are, having that added level of self-awareness really helps when being able to make decisions and have resilience in moving through the process of change. So if you found this conversation helpful, I would love for you to think of somebody that you know is maybe in a wave of change right now and forward this conversation to them. Send this to them. Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice or go over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com and share it from there. Either way, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you again for listening. And I will see you next episode.